I'd like to tell you about the strangest secret in the world. You go inside the cage. Cage goes in the water. You go in the water. Sharks in the water. Our shark. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. to sail back to Boston. So never more shall we see you again. Short me to see you again. We'll rise and we'll roll like true British You're listening to A Mind Revolution. Leading you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time. Across the salt sea. Hey there, everybody. PT Pop here with all four lobes of my brain securely bound behind my back. And welcome back to PT Pop, a mind revolution, where I lead you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time. And thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading me. I'm happy to be here today. Today is, what is today? Today is Tuesday, I think. Let me look at my magical glowing device here in my hand. It is Tuesday, November 29th. Hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving, grand Thanksgiving if you celebrate that. I am actually broadcasting to you today from my brand new studio in downtown Cleveland. And I am just trying it out because there, there's a little bit of problem with echo in here. It's a bigger room than my studio at home. And I want to see how it sounded here. I'm going to be inviting guests to come into my studio and interview them in my lair, my podcasting lair. It's been a busy, it's been a busy year. Um, for those of you who know about my podcast, you you know about my documentary films uh, during the shutdown, during the pandemic. I I wrote and directed and produced a video, uh, full, a full length feature documentary called "The Artist," a documentary where I basically followed a few artists around the Dayton, Ohio art community to document how hard it is to be an artist and to document their struggles. And I've had, I've had a lot of really great response to the films. It's beginning to take up speed uh, on the net the, the longer it's out there. So I, I had a great time doing that. And I just finished my second documentary, which is called Road to Forgiveness. And this is an autobiographical documentary that talks about my childhood being raised in poverty by two alcoholic parents. And this is a film that I spent a year and a half working on. I just finished it. It's called Road to Recovery. I'm sorry, not Road to Recovery. Road to Forgiveness. Not Road to Recovery. Road to Forgiveness. And I will have it up. I'll have a link to it up here in the description of this podcast, but it's now available for free on YouTube. And I decided to go just a YouTube route because it just, the other channels I went with my other documentary, everything just ended up 
on VOD platforms, which is known as video on demand, just like YouTube, where you basically upload it, you watch movies for free and you get and you watch advertising and I make some money off the advertising. I'm like, well screw it. I'll just put it on YouTube and see what happens with it. But this video took about a year and a year and a half to me for me to write and produce and direct and film. I did everything by myself. I did it all all the cinematography, all the camera work, all the audio. There's three original songs in the film. The rest of the music is stock audio from YouTube and Pond5. And it's a very, um, it was a very emotional time making this film. It really went over a lot of the things I went through as a kid and how traumatic it was to be homeless and poor and how I overcame it through forgiveness. I didn't overcome it completely. That's not true. I still have a lot of things I'm working out mentally and emotionally for myself. And, you know, I'm almost 60 years old, so this stuff sticks with you for a long time. And I wanted to make this movie because there are millions and millions and millions of people around the world who were raised by alcoholic parents who were abused emotionally, mentally, and physically. But most of us don't talk about it. And the only time you ever really hear about it is when you have celebrities and I guess that can be good or bad, but usually a celebrity will come up on stage and say, hey, my parents are drunks, how about you? When they're trying to push a movie, when they're trying to sell a book, when they're trying to sell a new TV show. And I got, I'm, I'm tired of watching the celebrities talk about it. What about the regular person, like me and you, who struggled through this for an extended period of time as kids, and now you're, you're struggling with the aftermath, with the residual effects of being raised in such a way. By the way, in my new studio, I am in a, an old building, and uh, there's a variety of other artists around me. And if you hear voices in the background, you're not hearing things. There's a, a photographer and videographer in the room next door to me, and you can hear them talking through the walls. It's very glorious. It's a glorious thing to hear people in your videos. So... Um, if you hear other noises, music, people in the background, um, I'll do my best to edit it out and post, but you're going to hear like, because there's people all around me doing, doing their work. But that being said, today's podcast, I'm going to discuss a book written by David McGowan, and it was published by World Head Press. And the title of the book is Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And it discusses the West Coast sound that came, the, the music that came out of the West Coast during the 1960s, 1970s. It's known as the West Coast sound. And many of these bands came out of an area of California called Laurel Canyon. And the book, the title of this book is called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream by David McGowan. And I stumbled upon this book because I was listening to another podcast where they were interviewing Mr. McGowan and he was talking about this book and I was fascinated with it because the music of the 60s is a huge part of my life. And to give you a little bit of background about me, you know, I'm 57 years old and I've been listening to rock and roll music for 49 years. 
And the first band I listened to was the Beatles. And that's not a West Coast band. That's a British Invasion band. But the Beatles ushered me into the world of rock and roll at the age of eight. And I was a rabid Beatle maniac. I mean, my mania didn't subside until I was well into my 30s, probably my late 30s. I was just like in a a Beatles-induced trip, if you will. (laughs) But by the time I was 10, I was listening to bands like The Doors and The Birds and The Mamas and The Papas and a variety of other uh, bands that came out of the West Coast. So uh, these bands also had huge influence influence on me, not only The Beatles, but the West Coast sound, as it's known, the Moms and the Papas, the Birds, the Doors, bands like that, Buffalo Springfield, um, Frank Zappa, were were part of my were you know part of my background. Music was my sanctuary, and if you watch my documentary Road to Forgiveness, you'll see how the Beatles were an escape for me from the alcoholic environment I was in. Being raised by two alcoholic parents, they were they were always fighting. There were hellacious fights, and we were poor. And there was a lot of real emotional, mental, and physical grief going on. And I used the Beatles and the music of the '60s and the '70s to escape into. It was my sanctuary. But the music of the '60s and the '70s was my soundtrack. It was a soundtrack of my life, and it was a it was an escape and a release for me from traumatic times at home. And I recently discovered that the music that this music was my opiate. And it may have been all my life, and it shaped how I thought. The music shaped how I felt. It shaped how I perceived the world. It shaped how I approached people. It shaped how I approached life. It shaped how I became an artist and how I approached my art and my music. And a huge, huge, huge effect on me, all of this music, not just the Beatles, but all of this music. And in your mind, when you're watching these bands on TV, when you see videos, when I was a kid, you know, the Mamas and the Papas were still a topical band to some degree. Um, but when you watch all these bands, whether it's the Beatles or the Who or the Mamas and the Papas, and you see them on TV and you're a kid, you take them at face value and you go, oh, they, they're great. They're awesome. They must be good, clean-cut people who are just just doing good things. Gee willikers. And they're going home at night and they're reading the paper and they're watching TV with their kids and they're taking the Cub Scouts and then the mom is staying at home and making bread and just must be gee look a nice life in their big mansions in California. And you think they're just good Joes. You think they're just good, wholesome people. And you think their music is amazing. You're like, you assume that these bands played their own instruments in the rock and roll studios, you know, in, in EMI or Abbey Road or in any of the studios on the West Coast. And what I discovered, aside from this book, was there. there's a guy named Mike Williams. He's here on YouTube. And uh, he is a critical thinker and the host of the popular internet radio show, Sage of Quay Radio Hour. And I began, because of his show, I began to rethink my take on my favorite band, The Beatles. And it led me to this book, Weird Seasons Inside the Canyon. But, but Mike's tireless research on the band has led me to conclude that the Beatles, even the Beatles, may not have performed on the records that the world has been listening to for over 50 years, but also they may not have even written their own songs. So as I think as The Clash had said, phony Beatle, phony Beatle mania has finally bitten the dust. And even John Lennon in some of his songs has alluded to that 
you know, the dream is over. Maybe the Beatles weren't even a real band. But his YouTube videos made me wonder if other bands, it made me wonder if other bands in the 1960s were manufactured. And this led me to Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon by David McGowan. Now, David McGowan, uh, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. He actually passed away right before the release, of the, or right after the release of this book, about a year, within a year. And so I wanted to, I, I looked him up, and I was going to see if I could interview him about his book, but um, unfortunately, my microphones don't go to the great beyond. But rest in peace, Mr. McGowan, you, you wrote a great book. Um, he's also the author of Program to Kill, The Politics of Serial Murder. Um, but in this book, this is a fascinating book. You've, if you're into this kind of thing and you want to find out what is going on, what went on with, with your favorite music from the fifth, I'm not the fifties, the sixties and the seventies, buy this book. It is fascinating. Um, and it opened my eyes and gave me a new perspective on the music I've been listening to my whole life. Now, in this book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, David takes us down a long and winding road of Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which is littered with murder victims, deception, psychedelic drugs, and possible influences by military intelligence personnel. Sprinkled into the mix is the notorious Charles Manson. And I'm kind of summarizing what it's saying to me here in the back of the book. You know, you know, the summary in the back of the book says Laurel Canyon, 1960s and the early 1970s, was a magical place where a dizzying array of musical artists congregated to create much of the music that provided the soundtrack to those turbulent times. Members of the bands like the Birds, the Doors, Buffalo Springfield, the Monkeys, the Beach Boys, the Turtles, the Eagles, and the Flying Burrito Blubber, <laughs> Flying Burrito Blubbers, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Frank Zappa. Mother's Invention, Steppenwolf, CSN, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Free Dog Night, and and Love, along with such singer-songwriters as Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins, James Taylor, Carol King, lived together and jammed together in the bucolic community nestled in the Hollywood Hills. But there was a dark side to that scene as well, it says here. Many didn't make it out alive. And many deaths remain shrouded in mystery to this day far more integrated into the scene than most would like to admit was a guy named Charles Manson, along with his murderous entourage. Also floating about the periphery were various political operatives, up-and-coming politicians and intelligence personnel, the same sort of people who gave birth to many of the rock stars populating the canyon. And all the canyon's colorful characters, rock stars, hippies, murderers, and politics, Politicos happily coexisted alongside a covert military installation. So that gives you the foundation of the book. That's that's the back of the book I'm reading. That, that is, those are not my words. So let, let's start off with let's start off what the West Coast sound was, and that's a general title for these bands, such as the Mamas and the Papas, the Doors. Frank Zappa, and so on, that came out of the West Coast, out of Laurel Canyon, in the 1960s and 70s. And they were located in a place called Laurel Canyon. And Laurel Canyon is, 
a mountainous neighborhood in the Hollywood Hills region of the Santa Monica Mountains within the Hollywood Hills West District of Los Angeles, California. And it sits right above the Sunset Strip in California. And many of the bands who formed the West Coast Sound got their start performing in clubs on the Sunset Strip. Clubs like Whiskey A Go-Go, which opened on the Strip in 1964, and other 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 places. But Whiskey A Go-Go hosted West Coast bands such as The Doors and The Birds. And as I said, you know, the West Coast Sound, it's just, it's just basically a group of bands that came out of this area. Some of the most prominent bands, as I had already stated, the Beach Boys, the Birds, Jefferson Airplane, the Doors, Buffalo Springfield, Love, Frank Zappa, and the Mother's Invention. But many of these bands didn't get their start the same way other bands got theirs. Um, you know, most bands, musicians like myself, we struggle in the bar scene. But, you know, most of these bands didn't get their start struggling in the bar scene, rehearsing with change of personnel in each band, etc. Some of these bands just magically appeared and were automatically successful. And if you're a musician, and if you have tried to get fame with your music, you know as well as I do, you buy a guitar, you get an amplifier, you write some songs, you learn a bunch of cover tunes, you get a bunch of guys and gals together, and you find a place to rehearse, and you squeeze the rehearsals in when you can in between, you know, your day job and your family and trying to pay the bills and all that stuff. Then you pound the pavement with a demo. Well, back in my day, it was a demo cassette. You know, you're knocking on doors, you're going up to bars, you're going into bars and saying, hey, you know, this is my band, the, the Gobbledygooks or whatever they're called. You know, just that's just a made up name. I don't know if there's a band out there called the Gobbledygooks, but let's just... For sake of argument, this imaginary band, you go and say, hey, dude, I've got this great band. We, we do covers and originals. We're called the Gobbledygooks. Please hire us. Here's our demo. And then you sit and you wait for the phone to ring. And nine times out of ten, you know, they don't call you back. Because a lot of these really popular bars, especially really big, well-known bars, they get hundreds of tapes, you know, months, sometimes a week. <clears throat> and they gotta, they got to decide who they're going to let play in their bar, and then a lot of it comes down to money. How much money is this band going to make the bar? How many, how many people is it going to draw? How much draw are they going to get? You know, there's a whole bunch of factors, and it's an extremely hard endeavor, and it's it's an uphill endeavor. It's it's very hard. It's almost impossible to make it. <clears throat> and then you've got to figure out. You got to say, you know, this is my price. You know, you figure you've got a four piece band in 2022. You know, for the band to survive, you can't just offer the band 50 bucks. You know, you're going to order offer them something substantial. So, you know, it gets to be really complex and convoluted and, and political. And <clears throat> it's a very difficult thing. And the point here is, is that these bands, some of these bands weren't even musicians. Some of these bands didn't even know how to play a guitar or the drums, or the bass, and they became famous overnight, literally overnight. And for instance, the band The Doors. Now, I love The Doors. I, I listened to The Doors since I was 10 years old. There was a, a there was a, um, a radio, well, there's still a radio station here in Cleveland called WMMS. But back in the day when they were 
when they were big. They um, played something called album-oriented rock, where they would play like entire album sides, or they'd play select cuts from the album that weren't the hit singles. They'd, they'd do what's called a deep dive in the album and play more eccentric or more, less well-known tracks on the album. Well, and the station, I discovered The Doors. And I discovered Frank Zappa, and I discovered a lot of heavier, harder music like Led Zeppelin and things like that. But um, I discovered The Doors, and I was in trance as a little kid. I remember hearing Light My Fire, and I was fascinated with Jim Morrison. I was fascinated with their, with their sound, and it kind of put my brain into a trance. It was really weird. But The Doors didn't have any band experience prior to their formation. Jim Morrison is a state, and a lot of what I'm stating, say, stating to you is from the book, uh, Weird Scenes Inside the Kin. Jim Morrison had no interest in music or singing prior to the, being in the doors. He was a poet. So, the, and I'm going to focus a little bit a lot in the doors in this presentation because I was blown away when I discovered this that Jim Morrison and his family had strong ties to the United States military. But before I get to that, let me, let me go back a step here and talk about Laurel Canyon. Laurel Canyon, as I stated, is this is this area in the Hollywood Hills of Southern California. And there's a there's a smack dab in the center of Laurel Canyon. Back in the fifties and sixties, is a place called Lookout Mountain. And now, I mentioned Jim Morrison. He has ties to the military. But perched high above the din of the madness in the canyon was the classified, top-secret, 100,000-square-foot United States Air Force military installation called Lookout Mountain. This was an installation that produced top-secret motion pictures for the United States Department of Defense and the Atomic Energy Commission. Nothing to see here. Keep moving, please. And this, this story goes on what the public's been told. is this, this facility was used to create propaganda to support the atomic nuclear arsenal that, that our government was boasting about. They, you know, they, they videotaped the nuclear clouds at the test sites in oh, Nevada and New Mexico and things like that. And they, they did all kinds of things. And they had a full movie production studio. They had... Everybody that worked there had top-secret clearance. There were people that worked there like John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe, Jimmy Stewart. They all played part in these propaganda films. They'd released some of them to the public to help support the military's cause for nuclear armament and things like that. So this, this lookout mountain is perched high atop in the middle of this whole complex that eventually was filled with hippies and musicians and famous peoples and actors and actresses. And... Look it up on, on YouTube. There's a, there's a bunch of films that they can show that were created in Lookout Mountain. And there's a bunch of things about their top-secret military film studio. So, so I think the thing that's fascinating about this book is what, what he really spilled the beans on. The, I didn't know this. Was that Jim Morrison of The Doors... Um, was the son of Rear Admiral William L. Morrison. 
And and and, and as I read through my notes here, I I. I Got two different names. I got Rear Admiral William L. Morrison, but I think it's actually George Admiral George Stephen Morrison, and he was a United States Navy Rear Admiral and Naval Aviator. Morrison was commander of the United States Naval Forces during the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964, and the Gulf of Tonkin incident sparked an escalation of American involvement in the Vietnam War. And he was the father of Jim Morrison, the lead singer of the rock band The Doors. Now, you sit there and you go, wait a minute. Jim Morrison's dad was part of the false flag incident known as Gulf of Tonkin that all of us know about in this country because it got us into the Vietnam War. This is a huge, huge incident. It's a huge page in our history, and it got us into one of the worst wars we've ever been involved in where 60,000 men lost their lives. Millions of Vietnamese lost their lives. And you go, wait a minute, Jim Morrison, the, the hippie, far-out dude of the door, is singing about light my fire, baby, and keep on moving. Now. You know, uh, what's that song? I can't think. Now that I'm thinking about Jim Morrison, I think of his music. Keep your hands on the road, your eyes on the wheel, or keep your eyes on the road and your hands upon the wheel. Okay, yeah, sure, sure, there, uh, Mr. Jim Morrison. His dad was the admiral that oversaw the fleet that was part of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and it's been proven that the Gulf of Tonkin incident was a false flag. It was fake. And there's been interviews with pirates pilots from that American pilots from that time said they were firing into the ocean. There were no boats beneath them. There were nobody attacking them. There were no gunboats. It was all made up made up. And there's a picture here I'll post of Jim Morrison and his father on the bridge of the USS Bon Ham Richard. I don't know if it's Hami or Homi. I think it's Ham Bon Ham Richard. And this is, I think, the lead ship in the Gulf of Tonkin incident. I mean, his father was there. But nothing to see here. There's, there's no connection. It's just a, just a coincidence. But what I find strikingly interesting is that there's declassified documents released in 2001 that proved that President Lyndon B. Johnson knew that Tonkin incident never happened prior to the war. Further, it showed he lied about the incident, using it as a, as a catalyst to go to war. <clears throat> and it's kind of funny, they released these documents right around 9-11, when 9-11 happened. So Jim Morrison uh, has ties to the industri military-industrial complex. He's up there in his skin-tight leather pants with his big belt buckle and his big pouty lips and, you know, drunk on stage and sings crazy lyrics that really have no make no sense. You're like, wow, he was part of, his, really, his family is part of Gulf of Tonka, Tonkin. So, so as I look at this and I say to myself, well, you know, what? I remember being a kid, you know, and I remember going, why are there hippies? Because when I was a little kid, there were hippies. You'd see people 
with long hair and you know bell bottom jeans and tie dye shirts strutting around and um you know my brother was a hippie and his wife's kind of a hippie and they they both smelled of patchouli you know and they were I, I don't know what their politics were what they were they weren't but they seemed to be hippies to me longer hair and stuff like that um but I thought, well, why did these people all of a sudden start dressing like this? It just seemed to arise out of nowhere. It seemed, where did this come from? All of a sudden, you've got these grown men and women dressing like they just rolled out of bed that aren't bathing, and they're listening to this far-out music, and they're just like, hey, man, let's see you ever hear about this music, man. This is the Doors, and this is the Moms and the Papas. And, you know, some of these bands and these hippies just magically appeared. And I think it's it's peculiar you know, if you just base it off of Jim Morrison, whose father was an admiral in the Navy that oversaw one of the biggest lives in U.S. military history, but you've got to go, you've got to go deeper into it. Like, for instance, in the book, he covers Frank Zappa. Frank Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa's dad was a chemical warfare technician and a chemist at the Edgewood Arsenal. Zappa's manager was a former United States Marine. Zappa's wife was a Navy research engineer who heard voices in her head all the time. All of her life she heard voices in her head. Her father was her father was did nuclear research. Okay? But let's let's go let's go a little bit further in some other bands. So we got Jim Morrison tied to uh, a United States Navy Admiral that oversaw the Gulf of Tonka. You've got Frank Zappa, whose dad was a chemical warfare sh- uh, technical technician and chemist in Edgewood. Zappa's manager was a United States Marine. Zappa's wife was a research engineer who heard voices. Now let's go to the mamas and the papas. John Phillips, who's one of the founders of the mamas and the papas, you know, their songs, you know, California Dreamin' and all these wonderful, wonderful songs. John Phillips was in Cuba at the height of the Cuban Revolution. His father was a career Marine Corps officer and involved intelligence, involved in intelligence work, clandestine stuff. So you're going to sit back and ask yourself, okay, wait a minute. So Jim Morrison's dad was the admiral that oversaw the Gulf of Tonga, Tonkin. John Phillips was in Cuba at the height of the Cuban Revolution. What was John Phillips doing in Cuba during the height of the Cuban Revolution? His father was a Marine Corps officer involved in military intelligence. Hmm, that's kind of weird. But there's nothing to see here, nothing at all. The Mamas and the Papas, all their music on the records was performed by studio musicians like Glenn Campbell. Now, if you haven't ever heard Glenn Campbell play guitar, this guy is a virtuoso, or he was. I think he's gone now. I don't I don't know if he's alive or dead, but just think of this. I grew up listening to Mamas and the Pops, and I assumed they sang everything, and everything was their instrumentation. They were brilliant geniuses. Nope, they didn't play any of their music on the records. <clears throat> Back to John Phillips. Now, John Phillips went to military prep schools. His father was Corps Captain Phillips. His mother, sister, and first wife were all employees of the Defense Department. And John Phillips was educated at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. His real father, 
I guess his the the the, the this uh, Captain Phillips was a stepfather, but his real father was U.S. Marine Corps doctor named Roland Meeks, who died in a Japanese POW camp in World War II. His first wife was Susie Adams, who was the descendant of President John Adams. So we've got people in these bands that are part of the military intelligence group, parents part of the military intelligence group. We've got uh, lineage to presidents. John Phillips was in Havana, Cuba, just as the Batista regime was about to fall and the revolutionary uh, to the revolution I can't speak to the revolutionary forces of Fidel Castro. His mother worked for her in her entire life, worked for the federal government. His sister worked for 30 years at the Pentagon. Now, this is all from the book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. His first wife, Susie Adams, was the descendant of John Adams. Her father was involved in intelligence. She worked at the Pentagon as well. Now, more into the Mamas and the Papas. Michelle Phillips, who was one of the singers in the band, well-known, her father was a merchant marine and a movie production assistant. So, so you've got these prominent people in these huge bands. And from what the book says, the mamas and the papas, none of them even knew how to play their instruments. And somehow they just walked in one day and started a band named the mamas and the papas. There's more to it than that. But they somehow got their music got moved to the top of the stack. They got all this recognition and I think the theory of the book is that the theory, I don't know if he ever comes out and exactly defines this, but I think he basically theorizes that the United States government, working from Lookout Mountain, had ties to all these people. And, all these, and they started to make, they wanted to make music that would undermine the peace movement of the 1960s, the, the anti-Vietnam peace movement. And so they came up with these, they, they brought this new culture in, this hippie culture, to kind of make the youth complacent, to um, undermine the current peace. There was a legitimate peace movement out there that was being very effective. And it was, you know, it was on the news every night, the protests in the street and things like that. And I think basically the book is saying that, that the government in some way, shape, or form formulated these bands, pushed them into the mainstream media and the radio stations and all the networks to get their music out there to subvert the youth's mind, to make them more pliable, to turn the protesters back in a way. I, I'm not certain how it works or how it worked, but if you think about it, this this hippie music movement in the night was in nineteen sixty seven just kind of came out of nowhere. Where did it come from? And it came out of mostly out of California. And I think it made a lot of people passive and complacent. It made a lot of kids want to rebel against their parents, which which to me in some ways doesn't make sense because if you have a passive, complacent youth, then no one's want to go, going to want to go to war. They may not protest, but they're not going to they're not going to you know go fight. VC in South and North Vietnam. So I'm not certain what the actual <clears throat> tactic was that the government was using, but it seems like the author, David McGowan, is saying the government came up with this hippie movement. The government came up with some of this sound. They made up these bands 
with studio musicians to push a certain narrative musically to warp and shape the minds of the youth. Now, Charles Manson, who we've all heard of because of the Tate-LaBianca murders in the 1960s, he has ties to all of these bands. Now, he was a musician and an artist, but he has ties with the moms and the papas. He hung out with all the people in Laurel Canyon. He hung out at Cass Elliott's place. He went to parties at John Phillips' house. He was uh, involved with the Beach Boys. Um, you know, and, and now slipped my mind. My notes don't have his name there. Dennis Wilson, I think he was associated with Dennis Wilson and a famous producer out there on the West Coast. I can't think of the producer's name, but Manson took a bunch of songs like Dennis Wilson, all the Beach Boys, and Brian Wilson, and they were going to produce a record for Manson, but they decided not to do it and allegedly stole one of Manson's songs. But Manson was hanging out with all these people. And if you jump around, I mean, there's a bunch of other bands he covers here, Stephen Stills and David Crosby, both from military families. Stills' father was an Army intelligence officer who spent much of his career in Central America, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Panama Canal. Stephen Stills, and founding member of Buffalo Springfield and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, spent time as a kid with his dad in Central America. He attended military academies, and it said he served a team. He said he served a term of duty in Vietnam. I mean, uh, the author theorizes he could have been a CIA operative as a military advisor. David Crosby, his full name is David Ben Cortland Crosby, founding member of the Birds, whose father was an Army Air Force major who did intelligence work. So we've got Crosby, Stills, and Nash, we've got the Birds, we've got the Moms and the Papas, we've got the Doors, all part of military intelligence people. His family tree goes back to the Founding Fathers, a direct descendant of Alexander Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. And Crosby, uh, David Crosby, is also known to be a gun enthusiast. Jackson Brown. Father, my eyes have seen the light, or seen the years, or whatever. Jackson Brown, his father was an Army intelligence officer assigned to the to post to his post in reconstructed Germany. He was born in a military, ho- military hospital in Heidelberg, Germany, after the war ended. The Band America, this, uh, this goes, it goes on and on and on. The Band America was another Laurel Canyon band, you know, Horse with No Name and Tin Man, that band. All three of their dads, all three band members, were Air Force intelligence officers. Nothing to see here. Now, we just all happened to be disgruntled kids from military families, and we just went out and started bands to try to become success, and we just happened to make it the top. All of us made it famous. So, were the only kids to have musical abilities the ones who came from a you know family military intelligence complex? I mean, it's, it's just, it, 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 this is no longer a coincidence. Andy Summers of the band The Police hung out in Laurel Canyon. Stuart Copeland of the police, he's the son of Miles Copeland, one of the most well-known CIA operatives in history. 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 His mom was a high-ranking British intelligence officer. I mean, it goes on and on. 
He touched on the monkeys. I, I didn't write notes about down about the monkeys, but the monkeys are just as bad as all the rest of them. Joan Baez, her dad was a CIA station chief. The birds, this is a band I just loved as a kid. You know, Tambourine Man, which was a Dylan song. They did Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. The birds didn't write any of their songs on their first album. So here's a group of guys that they somehow plucked out of nowhere, put on the front of an album cover, and they didn't write any of their songs. Only one of them played instruments. And Glenn Campbell was one of the studio musicians who played on their first album. The drummer and the bass player of the birds didn't even know how to play their instruments. So somehow, I mean, you guys and gals out there that play music, you know how hard it is to get discovered as a musician. So how did a group of guys that couldn't play anything and didn't know how to write music get to the top of the charts in the 1960s when they had got competition like the Who, the Beatles, the Kings, the Stones, all those guys? This is just crazy. Is it all just a coincidence? Is it? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And there were a variety of murders in Laurel Canyon. There's just a few of them here. I mean, Lenny Bruce, a comedian, Sal Minio, Inger Stevens, Diane Linkletter, uh, Rome, Ramon Navarro. So, so you know, the book is a fascinating book. It gets a bit, little bit lost in the weeds. And, and it gets bogged down in certain areas. But overall, I've got to say, okay, here are my idols. These are the people I grew up listening to and inspired me to play guitar. You know, James Taylor is, is another person that came out of the West Coast sound. He got discovered by Paul McCartney, the Beatles in England, but he's from California, I believe, or, or he got discovered in California. He's originally from Connecticut, I think. But you go, okay, wait a minute. All these people somehow are magically connected to the CIA and intelligence work and military. They're just disgruntled kids that have to go out to the West Coast that got magically drawn to this one spot that has this secret military industrial complex in the middle of it. And they just happen to move to the top of the charts, top of the charts. They just happen to get recording contracts. They just happened to have the best music and they all, all happen to be music, musical geniuses. I don't think so. And this is what I'm talking about when I talk about leading out of the rabbit hole. A lot of the things that we have seen and experienced in our lives is a lie. You know, you know, many people know it now, but the music is a lie. The music industry is used to shape and warp the minds of the youth, to instill ideas and beliefs in their minds. So when they become adults, you know, they'll, they'll stick to those beliefs. Or to distract people, it's used to distract people, it's used to pacify people, it's used to to take the fight away from people, or to make them angry about things that, you know, I would get angry and things about music, I had no idea why I was getting angry about them. So there's a whole bunch of things going on here in the music industry that's a lie. And as I touched on this whole thing with uh, Mike Williams on YouTube, touching talking about the Beatles not even being a real band, and he's done deep, thorough investigations about this. He's done all kinds of investigation. And he's proven that the Beatles didn't even have time to write music. They didn't have time to go in the studio to, to make the songs. 
And his theories are not just conjecture. They're not just theories. They're, they're based in fact. His, his, he, he, he has a whole timeline of where the Beatles were, what they were doing, different photo shoots. They were in. There's no way they had time to sit back and go, okay, let's write, please, please me. Okay, let's write, you know, she loves you or whatever. And if you listen to their demos, the Beatles demos, these guys, these guys weren't that good musicians. They were not good musicians, technically speaking. I mean, if you listen to their live performances before they were famous, like in, in Hamburg, in Hamburg or in the Star Club, they actually sucked. Technically speaking, they had some charisma, some energy, but outside of that, I don't know what they really had. They were raunchy and rough sounding, but how somebody from a record company walked in and saw that and went, you know what? These guys would be the perfect answer to Elvis. This would be the this these guys are gonna make it, man. This is it. It just doesn't make any sense. If you really think about the things we've listened to, whether and watched movie stars, rock stars, rap artists, uh, you know, all the things from pop music from like nineteen sixty beyond, it's all designed to Make you think about love, how to think about sex, how to think about women, whether to be anti-war or pro-war, or whether to be anti-establishment or pro-establishment. It's, it's all there's all these weird mixed messages to think about. But as a kid, when I was a kid, I heard all this stuff. I'm like, oh wow! I'm, I went with a peace thing because there was hell going on at home for me. My parents were beating the shit out of each other. My brothers and my sister had taken off. They just left me there with my mom and my dad, and I had to figure out how to survive. And so I dove into the music. You know, I dove into all this music, and it was my, they were my saviors. All these bands were the, not just the Beatles, all of them were. And it, it shaped my mind how to think and how to feel. And I, it's how I approached love, you know. You know, I heard the song A Taste of Honey by the Beatles. And I think it's about kissing a woman. And, uh, and, uh, I dream of your first kiss. I can't remember the lyrics now, but you know, when you kiss this woman, it's like a taste of honey. Well, I remember my first kiss. I didn't taste honey. It was it was awkward, and it was like I've taste, I've kissed women since I was a kid when I was originally dating. And you know, kissing is nothing like I hear about in the, in the songs. You know, <laughs> it's like okay. I mean, I like kissing. Kissing can actually be better than sex. But not with everybody. But but my point is, is that it shapes your mind to think this is what love's going to be like. And I heard it in this love song. Or if you watch a Hollywood movie about love, you go, oh, that must be what love's like. I've got to go out and find this woman or this guy that's just like this. This stuff shapes your mind and it, and it warps you. It really does. And I thought I'd just let you know about this book. Um, you know, I would I would watch this watch for this book. Go, you can get it either in. I've got it both in audio, you can get it as an audio book, and you can buy it in hard or in paperback. And it's on Amazon. I've got two copies of it, and I think you'll like it a great deal. And it's published by Worldhead Press. The author is David McGowan. Check it out. There's a bunch of great interviews with David on the internet. And one by a woman by the name of Sophia Smallstorm. I would check her interview out with David. It's great. So I'm PT Pop. I'm going to sign off here. I hope you enjoyed this. Watch out for my documentary, Road to Forgiveness. It's on YouTube for free. Take care. Have a good day. Bye.
You have been listening to PT Pop, a mind revolution, leading you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time.